0: going in there and reading and writing uh, into that organ, essentially reads the human mind and changes the human mind. And that's the essence of who we are. We define ourselves by our mental and cognitive abilities as as a species. Because of that, we think that this is not just another technology, but this is one that goes to the core of humanity and and should be, Discuss in the arena of the human rights. And why the human rights? Because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, better than any other document in the world, defines what it means to be human.
1: Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I have to plug a few quick things. First of all, my book, Brexit The Establishment Civil War, is now available to order. You can read some chapter previews by following the link in the description below. Our sponsors, ExpressVPN, get 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN, and get 25% off podcast hosting with Podium. Finally, if you're watching this on YouTube, please go check out odyssey.com instead. We are hosting all our videos there. If you're a creator, you can move your videos across with one simple click and you can earn cryptocurrency simply by watching videos and use it to tip your favorite creators like myself. So please check that all out if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Professor Raphael Ust, who is a professor of biological sciences at Columbia University. Welcome to the show.
0: Welcome, greetings from New York City.
1: Oh, must be nice to be there right now. I'm sure the weather's lovely. Uh, we've just got rain here. <laughs> um, but so I am basically here to talk to you about the, the BRAIN Initiative and about neuro rights. So do you wanna start by giving us um, a little idea of, of your background just briefly before we start yep. and then what the BRAIN
0: Initiative is? Yeah, so I'm actually a strainist and MD. I, I come from Spain. Uh, and then I uh, did a PhD in neuroscience uh, at uh, Rockefeller University in New York, specializing um, in, uh, in uh, neuros- neurobiology. But actually before I got to New York, I stopped over in Cambridge in England, where I worked um, in a laboratory of scientists called Sidney Brenner, who recently died and he was uh, uh, at the MRC LMB in Cambridge. And when I was working there, I decided to leave medicine and go into research. And it was because of these uh, cuts in the science budget that uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, put in that hmm. uh, Sydney shipped me to the US. He told me go West, young yeah, man. And that's how I ended up in New York doing a PhD at Rockefeller. And then after that, I went to uh, at and Bell Laboratories the hotbed of uh, physics research, uh, specialized in biophysics. And then came to Columbia University, where I'm still uh, working uh, as a professor. I've been here uh, 25 years now. Uh, that's my old microscope behind me. <laughs> and um, and then in terms of the Brain Initiative, so I, I, I'm a researcher. I do. Uh, I try to understand how the brain works. I study the the brain of mice, the cerebral cortex in particular. And what we're trying to do is something what Sidney uh, Brenner and Francis Crick did the genetic code, which is to break the code. So we're trying to break the neural code. In other words, to understand how groups of neurons talk to each other and what are they telling, uh, the telling, can we break into that conversation and decode what they're saying? Now that's essentially what we're doing. Something similar to what molecular biologists did with uh, DNA. We're trying to do that with the spikes of the neurons, their neural activity. And the BRAIN Initiative starts uh, with a meeting in England, actually, in Chichley Hall. And I have a picture here. I have a postcard of uh, Chichley Hall. It's very dear to my. Here we go. It's a conference center uh, run by the Royal Society. And there was a meeting uh, there in, in September 2011, sponsored by the. Uh, um, the Caffley Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the Sainsbury Foundation, and also uh, the Allen Institute, another foundation from the U.S. And the purpose of the meeting was to brainstorm about uh, the future of neuroscience. In other words, why haven't we succeeded yet? What's wrong with neuroscience that we haven't been able to understand how the brain works? We haven't been able to break the code. And uh, in that meeting I made the argument that the reason is because we didn't have the right technology. We needed methods to record the activity of all the neurons in the brain. In the brain of an animal or in a part of the brain of a human. Methods to record and to manipulate, to change the activity. And this is actually follows the footsteps of the Human Genome Project, which was a large-scale project uh, that developed methods to uh, read the entire uh, uh, DNA of uh, of, uh, the human genome and and decipher it. And this proposal um, was met with skepticism by many of my colleagues, but luckily for me, there was a a few uh, uh, crazy uh, people, including one of the pioneers of the Human Genome Project, George who was there. And uh, and they threw their weight behind me, and we decided that rather than being bogged down by all the criticisms, they were saying that oh, you, this is impossible. You cannot record the activity of every neuron in the in the brain, and it's going to cost too much money. And even if you had the money, you will generate too much data, and you would not know what to do with it. So, uh, George uh, pointed out that these were the criticisms that were made to the Human Genome Project, and they were wrong. <laughs> so, uh, we were uh, essentially uh, strengthened by these criticisms, and uh, uh, we wrote a white paper uh, about launching a large scale uh, brain initiative, and we sent it to the White House, to the Office of Science and Technology of Obama's uh, White House, and uh, they liked it. And through a process of a year and a half with six visits to the White House, um, we uh, helped them put together a program. uh, And this was launched by Obama in 2013 called the Brain Initiative, which now encompasses 500 labs around the country and the world at a pace of about uh, funding of $540 million a year. So it's supposed to to, to last uh, 12 years and total funding about $6 billion. Whoa. And this BRAIN Initiative has stimulated other uh, similar initiatives in other countries, including China, Japan, Korea, Australia, Canada, Israel, and also the European Union launched a similar type of uh, BRAIN Initiative at the same time. So we're in a global uh, raise to build a method to build neurotechnology to do these two things I was describing to read the activity of neural tissue of the brain and to write to change the activity So that that sort of brings us to, to, uh, to where we are today yeah
1: yeah, that's a, that's a really fantastic summary, actually. Um,
0: so, my first question is
1: how how close are we to to being able to do what you are hoping to do—to to map and record even just the the all of the activity of every neuron in the brain? Yeah. And is it a measurement problem or a computer problem? Like, do we yeah. physically not have the the power to process and map all of this at once due yeah. to the, just the sheer number, or is it just we don't know how to measure it all yet?
0: Yeah, so since uh, the start of Brain Initiative, we've been able to map the complete activity of the nervous system of a very small animal, a cnidarian called Hydra. And it's not a coincidence, these cnidarians have the simplest brains in evolution. Mm -hmm. So just like the Human Genome Project, they started uh, sequencing uh, bacteriophages and then bacteria, and then they went up, worms, flies, all the way to humans. The same thing is going on with the brain initiative. We started with the simplest animals with brains, which are not bacteria, they're these cnidarians. And uh, a couple of years ago, we were able to use a method called calcium imaging to map the activity of every neuron while the animal was behaving. Uh, And people are now involved in doing similar uh, types of experiments in uh, worms, uh, in the larvae, uh, of fish, uh, and in the larva of flies. So we're climbing up our way towards the, the human brain. Mm-hmm. The problem is uh, a measurement problem. It's a technical problem. Uh, any, any brain of any animal uh, is composed by, uh, let's say in, in a typical, uh, the mouse brain, for example, a hundred million neurons, they're all packed together on top of each other and to record their activity, you cannot go, go in and stick a hundred million electrodes because you're <laughs> going to turn the whole thing into Swiss cheese. So you have to be clever about it. And one way to do it is using light because light can penetrate is non-invasive. So uh, and that's essentially what many of us are doing. We're using light with uh, methods to label the neurons with dyes that change brightness when the neuron is active. In our case, we use uh, calcium indicators, calcium dyes, and they get brighter when the neuron fires. And we essentially make movies. I can share with you some of these movies if you want. You can see these neurons popping, firing away. The problem is that the brain is three dimensional. So you have to make these movies with uh, microscopic precision in 3D. And in order to do that, you have to reinvent the microscope because From the beginning, from Leavenhood, microscopes were built to look at things in two dimensions. That's why you have this, uh, you cut the sections until you have a very thin tissue and then you look at it with a microscope. But to do this in 3D and keeping track in a moving uh, activity, in in a moving animal, it's it's not trivial, it's a huge run. That's why people said that you cannot do it. Mm. But we are doing it little by little. So um, the amount of data that are coming out are are massive, but uh, it's not that different from the types of data that astronomers are getting from their telescopes right now. So I don't think we have a data bottleneck, but we definitely have to reinvent uh, microscopy in order to be able to uh, um, record the complete activity, not just of little animals, but bigger animals as well.
1: Mm. So say you get to the point where you can Um, measure and map all of the the neurons within the brain of even just say a mouse right what what are the next steps then to to when you talk about um influencing and controlling the the activity of the neurons like what what does that mean does that mean you're gonna be able to just like calm them down or or actually influence behavior or
0: uh, patterns of behavior yeah so um yes so um We have to do two things, we have to read and write. And to read, uh, we have to be able to decode what the messages are are saying. And we're still at this stage, but uh, we're working, uh, in some cases we can decode effectively some of the messages are being passed around. For example, in our lab, we work on the visual cortex of mice. So this is the back part of of our cerebral cortex and it processes visual information. And the mice have a cortex just like we do. They're smaller, but essentially works the same way. So we can decode by using this calcium imaging and uh, measuring very few neurons, maybe a few thousand. We can decode uh, what the animal is seeing. So we show the animal, for example, a, a pattern of moving bars that just go up and down in the screen. And at the same time we'll record the activity of these neurons and we can identify the signature in these neurons uh, that the bar is going up and down. In fact, if we just look at the activity we can predict what the animal is seeing. Okay. So that's the decoding part. And now comes the manipulation part. And in mice, you can do that. So we've been able to stimulate the neurons responsible that respond to when the animal sees these moving bars and the animal behaves exactly the same as if it was seeing these moving bars. In other words, we can take control of his perception and implant into his brain using uh, neurotechnology, using lasers, patterns of activity that make him behave as if he's seen something like a, putting like a hallucination into his brain. And, uh, and the animal behaves like a puppet. We train the animal to uh, lick or no lick, depending on what he sees or doesn't see. So by putting these patterns of activity in his, in his brain, he licks and doesn't lick. Uh, we just control his perception. This is uh, uh, not just us, other groups, including a group in, in at UCL, uh, has been able to, uh, to do similar experiments using optics to both read and write information into the brain and control the behavior of mice. What we can do with mice today, we should be able to do with humans tomorrow. Uh, it's technically possible to, uh, to both decode and uh, manipulate and change the brain activity.
1: Yeah, that was my next question. Like how, how... How much does that then map onto what we could, what we could theoretically do to humans? So like, would the, with the, ways that you're connecting and interfacing with the mouse's brain be broadly similar to what we would use on a human?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, this experiment with mice are invasive. We open the skull, and we, we can use all kinds of methods that are just not ethically allowed in humans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but this neurotechnology revolution that's involving not just the US, but all these countries in the world, and also uh, the the private sector. I should mention that uh, already last year, uh, private companies in the US, particularly tech companies, uh, invested six times more funding into neurotechnology development than the US Brain Initiative. So so, uh, most of this development is now starting to happen in the private sector. And a lot of what these companies are doing are building non-invasive brain-computer interfaces. And a brain-computer interface is essentially a device uh, that you could wear over your skull, like a a cup or glasses or a diadem that would record the brain activity and uh, send it to the the net or to a computer and uh, potentially also uh, stimulate brain activity. So, it could be like a two way communication into the brain. So, uh, the reason these companies are doing this is because of the possibility that these brain computer interfaces will become the new iPhones of the future. Hmm. If you look at uh, why we're using uh, our cell phones, our iPhones, the smartphones are essentially a way for us to connect us to the net. And we use our fingers and our eyes to put information into the net and bring it down. The minute we have these BCIs, we'll have a much higher bandwidth of interfacing uh, our brain to the net. So uh, they could uh, um, make obsolete uh, iPhones and uh, the next uh, sort of workhorse of the tech industry could be these BCIs. So that's why they're they're investing all these billions of dollars into this technology. Mm. So uh, so I think this is not science fiction. Uh, there's already some uh, low level decoding that you can do from brain activity. So, you cannot do the types of experiments that we can do with the mice, but um, uh, you can start to be able to decode uh, images that people conjure in their, in their minds, for example, with uh, brain scanners. So, this is starting to be possible. And as neurotechnology develops, the precision will be higher and higher for both decoding. Uh, information from the brain and also changing, specifically altering brain information. Okay.
1: I mean, that's going to put a lot of magicians out of business. Um, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, they, 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 um, they have an intuition of how, how to do that. Uh, but I think it's, it's going to be a, a wonderful uh, time for humanity, uh, this type of neurotechnology because it will have major um, advantages for science, um, for medicine and for the economy, mm. for science, because we'll be able to finally get and break the code of the uh, the brain and figure out what the hell is going on and understand how the brain generates the mind and uh, understand ourselves from the inside as humans for the first time. I think that's that's what drives me, you know, to try this curiosity of understanding what is uh, what is the human mind, what is the thought. Uh, w- w- who are we? And then for medicine, as as you know, and all your viewers know, um, mental and neurological diseases uh, have very poor uh, therapies. Uh, talking about Alzheimer's, mental retardation, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety—I mean, you name it. Stroke—the uh, brain—it's uh, like the dark corner of medicine. Uh, we, and the reason is because we don't understand how it works, so we cannot fix it as doctors. And we don't understand how it works because we don't have the methods to go in there, see what's happening and change what's happening. And then for the economy, as I was saying, with these cerebral iPhones, uh, this is gonna be a revolution. I think it could launch a completely new type of society where we're even more connected and and this has a lot of implications for ethics and for society that we should start to think about hard now yeah
1: yeah i mean i guess people people don't they quite often with with humans we don't realize like what we're agreeing to until down the line then we normally sort it out but with technology like this it's imperative that we get it right first yeah um i i wanted to just read out the 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 so you've been involved with the um neural rights uh campaign or project and um I just want to read out the five neural rights that that they sort of suggested as adding to the UN Declaration on Human Rights. This is the right to personal identity to prevent human identities from being diluted by connecting brains to computers, the right to free will, the right to mental privacy, the right to equitable equitable access to capacity building technologies and the right to protection against bias and discrimination. I th- why do you think it's so crucial that we get that laid down before this technology evolves?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the answer is very simple. The brain is not just another organ. It's not like your liver or your kidney. So technology that goes into the brain um, are, is much more important because the brain happens to be the organ that generates your mind. So everything that you are your perception, your memories, your thoughts, your imagination, your emotions, your personality, everything comes out of the firing away of these neural circuits. So uh, going in there and reading and writing uh, into that organ essentially reads the human mind and changes the human mind. And that's the essence of who we are. We define ourselves by our mental and cognitive abilities as, as a species. Because of that, we think that this is not just another technology, but this is one that goes to the core of humanity and and should be uh, discussed in the arena of the human rights. And why the human rights? Because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, better than any other document in the world, defines what it means to be human. What are the properties and our agreement of what are the basic tenets of humanity. So um, it's the most translated document in history uh, and it serves as a moral beacon for the world uh, since the second uh, world uh, war. So, uh, so we think that this is where this discussion should happen at the human rights level. And we should, with these new neural rights, we should define the, the basic uh, properties of the human mind and put it in writing to make sure that when we're developing this technology we don't infringe into these uh these core values of our humanity Mm.
1: what would you say to people who would say that it's all okay it's all well and good that we would you know write these laws down but i i can't think of a, a a law or rule in history that has been laid out and never broken um and and i know that there are people who would believe that this level of, A, connectivity, um, B, invasiveness into our minds, and that that is too powerful and too dangerous to even have the possibility for someone to abuse for us to go down this road. Like, what, what would be your response to th- those yeah. sorts of concerns?
0: Well, first of all, uh, I'm actually uh, positive and optimistic. I'm honest about this. We have to go uh, take this road. If nothing else, for the patients. If you know family members or friends that suffer from mental or neurological diseases, they're looking at you in the, in the eye every day and say, can you help me? We have to help them, it's urgent. It, it doesn't make any sense for humans to be able to send a man to the moon and not to be able to cure schizophrenia, for example, or Alzheimer's, I mean, we, we could do it. We have the uh, the... the We have to develop the tools to do it. And that's neurotechnology. Technology is neutral. You can use it for good and for bad. Uh, In fact, I'm talking to you from my office at Columbia and right behind my old microscope, it's Pupin Hall, who's the Department of Physics. And that building is actually a national monument in the US. Why? Because in the basement of Pupin Hall, uh, they built the first atomic reactor. And that was the beginning of the Manhattan Project. And that's why they called it Manhattan because it was actually started here in Manhattan. And that uh, created the the atomic bomb, but opened the door to nuclear energy. The same physicists who were involved in, in developing the bomb that changed the course of history were the ones lobbying, advocating for the ethical regulation of atomic energy. And because of that, President Eisenhower proposed the idea to the UN to create the International Atomic Commission, that since then has essentially handled atomic energy in the world. And fingers crossed, without any uh, any uh, mistakes, any any uh, problems. So, so so humans can we can organize ourselves <laughs> intelligently and harness. Uh, uh, a technology that could devastate the humanity, but we can also put it to good use. Huh? Hmm. Uh, and the same thing happened before uh, with uh, chemical weapons after the first uh, world war with biological weapons. There are many of these technologies that uh, that can have devastating effects on humanity. But the, uh, the answer is not to forbid the technologies and stop progress, but to organize ourselves smartly, decide uh, who we want to be. And uh, just like this example from the physicists that are looking at us uh, uh, every day I come to work, I, I pass the building, they, they, uh, they demonstrate that you can do it. Now, so that, that, that would be my attitude. That's what we're trying to do, to bring in this alert society of these potential problems, not to stop technology, but to put the guardrails so that it grows in a direction which is beneficial for humanity. So, what sort
1: of timescale do you see this unfolding over? Um, like, at what point do you think we would see, or do you have like a day in mind that we that you guys will achieve the 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 breaking of the neural code? Do you have like a, a, a time scale or is it is it? Due no, to, that to the next sort of. Yeah.
0: Well, this is what makes science so exciting. It could happen tomorrow, uh, hmm. any time. It could happen anywhere any time it could happen, uh, just like it did uh, with the breaking of the genetic code. And that time it happened in, in Cambridge. <laughs> uh, uh, well, this time, who knows where it's gonna happen, but uh, I can tell you that it probably will uh, require this type of new technologies to look at the activity of large numbers of neurons and, and be able to figure out uh, what are the, uh, the, the equivalent to the DNA uh, double helix uh, of uh, of the brain or what is the, the simplest principle that evolution has put in in our brain that lets us compute and lets us build this mental world um, so that that's uh, I'm, I'm living for the day in which i will maybe open a a journal or 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 say oh my god this is what it is and i cannot believe it was so simple that's what happened with the genetic code people thought it was super complicated, and then when they figure it out, like, this is so simple. <laughs> Biology is always like that.
1: So if people are listening to this and they are thinking, wow, either this is terrifying or I would like to learn more, where can they, where can they find your work and, and, and find out yep. more about
0: this? So uh, we've built a little organization that is called the Neuro Rights Initiative uh, out of uh, Columbia University. It's actually upstairs from, from me here and they can find us in the web. Just type in neuro rights, Columbia University and you'll find the, the website. We're also in social media. We're constantly posting things, uploading documents, uh, giving talks, uh, interviews like this one. So uh, we're trying to, uh, to have a, a vibrant outreach uh, and public engagement uh, in these issues. I mean, we have uh, Volunteers, we have a grassroots network that has over 60 people in 17 countries that are, are working towards the, uh, the uh, dissemination of these ideas of neural rights and the neuro uh, human rights discussion of the, uh, of the effects of, of uh, neurotechnology. You know? And uh, we're also working with many uh, countries. So uh, this week is actually historic because on Monday, the Senate of Chile approved unanimously uh, to change uh, Article 19 of the Chilean Constitution to provide uh, protection for uh, brain integrity. So, um, as of uh, this week, the Chilean Senate has approved this constitutional amendment, and uh, Chile is also involved in. Uh, uh, a neural rights uh, bill of law also started by the Senate of Chile so this could end up uh, passing and uh, putting some protection at least for that country in in South America and their uh, interest in uh, this approach a human rights approach to neurotechnology also from the UN from uh, from Spain and uh, from international organizations um, uh, like OECD, like our Organization of American States, uh, the European uh, Union. So uh, we hope that little by little uh, this issue will become um, r- important in in the agendas of these uh, policy uh, makers and and um, yeah and, and just like would happen with the with atomic energy. Um, this new technology could be regulated, or at least infused with an ethical bet from the beginning before we have uh, a hero uh, hiroshima <laughs> yeah. I guess. yeah, well, I don't, I'm not even sure
1: what form that would take in this in this uh, instance, but yeah, it's uh, terrifying to think about. <laughs> with the power of the technology, but um, yeah, Professor, I want to I want to thank you for your time. I know you're a busy man, um, so I will uh, let you get back to your to your your hard work in protecting all our brains.
0: Thank you. I, I really appreciate this interview. I mean, work of people like you is very important to translate to the public uh, what's going on in the laboratories, both in terms of scientific discoveries, but also in this case, in terms of potential ethical implications that I think uh, this is something that the whole society should know about and should get involved. And and, uh, again, uh, let's do it before it's too late. I mean, the lesson from COVID of how important it's to prevent things from happening. (laughs) Uh, So let's just try to prevent the next tsunami before it hits us. Yeah.
1: Well, that seems like a fantastic note to end things on. So um, thanks very much, Professor.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter, or sign up to our mailing list. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning-fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below don't forget my book is now out and available to order on amazon and on bookshop.org that's brexit the establishment civil war and most importantly thanks for listening we'll see you next time